Okay, so we're sitting here with Dr. Abraham Palmer, who is a professor of psychiatry at UC San Diego, um, and his lab studies the connection between uh, genes and behavior. Um, so thank you, Dr. Palmer, for, for sitting with me. I've been fascinated with your work for a while, and, and I'm pretty excited to, to talk to you. Happy to be here. Great. So um, I guess to just start us off, um, is loneliness genetic? Yeah, it is. Um, and that's surprising to some people, though I have to say that for people that study the genetics of behavior, that's maybe not so surprising uh, because most traits, personality traits, psychiatric traits, et cetera, are partially heritable. Uh, so what do we mean by that? We mean that your genetic inheritance from your parents is gonna influence your sense of how lonely you are. Okay. It doesn't mean necessarily that it would influence the number of social contacts you have. It's your perception when you consider those social contacts that you do and don't have. It's your perception of whether or not that to you feels lonely. Other people might be very uncomfortable despite having a lot of social contacts. That's what we're measuring. It's their sense of whether or not they feel deprived. And we've known that loneliness was heritable for some time. Uh, some of the earliest evidence of that was from twin studies. Uh, more recently, the work that I've been involved with has used a different complementary approach where we're actually measuring millions of genetic differences in large numbers of people. So in the most recent study, half a million people. Uh, and then asking whether or not we can explain some of the loneliness in those people based only on those genetic uh, measurements, those genetic differences that differentiate one person from another. And using that very different technical approach, we also have found that loneliness is heritable and we have then some ability to predict it. And are there specific genes that, that kind of correlate with loneliness? How do you kind of determine that? Yeah, yeah that's right. So one, one important answer you get from doing a study like that is which are the genes that seem to be responsible for some of that variability? It's never the case that there's gonna be one or even a few genes that are heritable for something as complicated as loneliness. And in fact, it's not the case that there's gonna be one or a few genes that account for even most of, half of, a quarter of the variation. Uh, there are probably thousands of genetic variants, but yeah, we are starting to identify genes and uh, they're genes that nobody's ever heard of by and large. So it's not the case that we find like, oh, it's the serotonin transporter or the dopamine transporter or things that members of the general public would have heard of. In fact, they're often so obscure that even trained geneticists haven't heard of these genes. There are, after all, 30,000 genes, so it's hard to keep track of them all. But yes, we, we are finding particular genes. Maybe you would expect that things like personality and psychiatric disorders like depression are genetically related to loneliness, and that's true. And so we can measure things like neuroticism, which turns out to be strongly correlated with loneliness. We can measure things like depression, it's strongly correlated. Subjective well-being, so asking people questions along the lines of, do you feel that your life is basically going well? Is the opposite inversely related? So, you know, it's not uh, more lonely means kind of less subjective well-being. Um, but then there are things that are maybe more surprising to people that might seem more like physiological traits. So things about body weight and morphology uh, are, are different. Things about cardiovascular disorders are different. Um, so really across a range of different things, including uh, clearly non-psychiatric traits, there seems to be a, a fingerprint of uh, the genetic risk for loneliness. Would high body weight make someone more lonely? Would being lonely 
cause somebody to increase their body weight, or maybe there's some shared causality and, and some other thing causes both of those things to co-vary. Uh, and people are starting to ask those questions, but I think it's probably too soon to say that we have firm answers for them. Is there anything that you can kind of use this information or, or, or any way you can use this information to kind of modulate loneliness? Yeah, um, it's a little science fiction-y to imagine taking a pill that would make you not mind that you are lonely or socially isolated. Yeah. Uh, it, might, it might be possible. I guess I wouldn't be surprised if somebody told me it was possible. I don't believe it exists yet. Uh, I don't know how much really hard data there are about whether or not some of the things that we use to treat related disorders, like depression, also change people's sense of how lonely they are. It wouldn't surprise me to hear that when you successfully treat depression with a drug, that you would also see measures of that person's sense of loneliness moving alongside that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's actually been a lot of exploration that I haven't particularly been involved with using more like epidemiological techniques, so population studies not focused on genetics, uh, that, that uh, John and Stephanie Cassiopo have worked on, for example, and others, to try to understand the relationship kind of temporally between loneliness and depression. So would depression first come up and then the person would start to have a sense of being lonely? I believe the conclusion they've reached is the opposite, that actually you see loneliness increasing prior to the onset of depressive symptoms as if it might be an important precursor for at least some kinds of depression. If you were kind of uh, predetermined to be somewhat lonely, I mean, yeah. your kids are definitely predetermined to be some, uh, is that kind of just something that you have to accept and just say, okay, that's, <laughs> that's what happens? Yeah, yeah, I mean, the, the, the joke I often use is that you should choose your parents wisely. Um, <laughs> and once you've made that choice, which of course isn't a choice for any of us, uh, you do have some genetic gifts and some you know, things that you might regard as genetic disadvantages. Sure. Um, I might have liked to be taller in life. That wasn't the way it worked out. Um, and some people struggle with psychiatric disorders. Other people are relatively unaffected by psychiatric disorders. And loneliness is just another one of those things. Um, certainly, I would not want anybody to think that there's destiny there. In every case, genetics explains some of somebody's predisposition to be more or less lonely but it never explains all of it. It probably doesn't even explain half of it. And everybody could do things in their life to try to address the sense that they were lonely, just kind of practical things like branching out and you know, taking some risks and meeting some people that would presumably have a positive impact on their sense of loneliness, regardless of their genetic predisposition. For some people that may not be important and they might find it nice to live in a cabin in Antarctica, you know, and that wouldn't bother them. And for other people that, that wouldn't work so well. And are there populations, I mean, yeah. that are, are, are kind of uh, more likely to be genetically lonely? One of the most striking things, so we've played around with big data sets. Initially, the data sets we had were tens of thousands and then, you know, hundreds of thousands of people. And you know some things, about, you know, very coarse things about these people besides just this uh, genetic information we have. So, for instance, you know their sex, right? I really would have assumed that there would be one sex that was more lonely than the other, that sex would account for some of that variance. And I'm not even sure in hindsight whether I thought it would be that women would feel more lonely or that men would feel more lonely, but I would have assumed there'd be something. Um, nothing, even with these huge samples, so you, you're, you're exquisitely powered to detect a difference. The two sexes are very, very similar for loneliness. It's really a striking finding. I also had an expectation about age. I thought 
that as people got older, they might get more lonely. And I don't know why I thought that, but that was just what I expected. Uh, somehow I had been indoctrinated that way just through uh, normal life. The opposite is true. People actually become measurably, significantly less lonely with each decade of life. And uh, of course, that's comforting to those of us who are no longer in the first few decades of life. Um, and it's actually uh, the way I've experienced aging. So as, as I approach my 50th birthday next week, um, you know, it's a, a good time to reflect on this. Yeah, <laughs> thanks. Um, it's a good time to reflect on this. And it is true. I feel sort of less anxiety about uh, my social network than I think I did when I was 20. And, and so uh, when we kind of know that um, loneliness is partially caused by genetics, do we, what kind of lessons do we kind of take from that? I, I know that's mm -hmm. maybe a little bit outside your jurisdiction, but I, I'm just, I mean, sure. how, how do we use that information, I guess? Yeah. I mean, one, so we did see these kind of impressive effects on, on physiological diseases that I think maybe were, if not unexpected, they were bigger than I expected. So for instance, cardiovascular disease, very strongly influenced by the genetic risk for loneliness. Mm -hmm. And we can do that by learning how to predict loneliness in one data set where we have genetics and we've measured loneliness. And then in a second data set where we've only measured cardiovascular disease, but we have genetics, we can make a prediction about how lonely these people would be purely on genetics, right? And we can then use that to say, does that prediction of who would be more lonely or less lonely in this cohort predict cardiovascular disease? Huh. And it does. And it does even when we correct for some of the likely confounders, smoking and depression and et cetera, things that might be mediating that effect. So I think one thing that we can say is that loneliness is, is a very real thing that it's a biological thing. You know, some people, I guess, make a distinction between things that they experience and things that have a biological basis, but there must be a molecular process in the brain that makes people have a sense of how lonely they are and that varies from one person to another. And it may be, although this is definitely not demonstrated by the data that we have now, but it may be that interventions aimed at reducing or addressing people's sense of loneliness would not just get rid of that unpleasant feeling of loneliness, but they might have other health benefits. And it may be that those would be really economical ways to influence and to positively influence people's health. And I think it's also sort of a reminder to the medical community that might be very laser focused on making drugs and you know, changing heart disease that way, that there are other more holistic and less technically sophisticated, but maybe equally effective ways that we can improve health at the individual level and at the population level by understanding that loneliness is a very real thing uh, that has a biological basis, but that can be modulated by uh, you know, environmental interventions. I really believe that there's a lot of potential in thinking about loneliness, not just as an unpleasant individual experience, but sort of at a public health level as something that we need to keep track of that has a big impact on quality of life, including health. And that if there are ways that we can address that and improve that, uh, we should do that. Uh, as human beings, we should do that. We should do that because there might be economic benefits. We should do that because there might be health benefits. You know, there's a lot of reasons to want to address that. And uh, anybody who's felt lonely, even for a few minutes, knows it's a very painful and unpleasant experience. Uh, so I think there's a lot of reasons to regard this as sort of serious, um, a serious health concern, a serious social concern, and not just sort of like an individual problem that that people should be expected to always solve for themselves. I think um, it, it's a very important thing to kind of add credibility to something that sometimes can feel, I think, uh, wishy-washy or people kind yeah. of 
um, you know, kind of push under the rug or, or whatever it is. But I think that what you're doing is kind of grounding it and making it uh, feel more real. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I would imagine that that actually makes people blame themselves less. Thank yeah. So thank yeah, you. Yeah, I, I hope I hope so. Nobody chooses to get cancer. Nobody chooses to get depression. Nobody chooses to be lonely, right? Are you yeah. a believer? I'm curious. Are you a believer that um, doctors should kind of screen for, for loneliness? Yeah, I think it might be. Uh, I, I mean, I would want that to be done only because we had data showing that it was helpful. You learn that by framing hypotheses from the kind of data that we and others have generated about loneliness and then seeing, can you take that to the next step? Can you take that to the next step? And, and eventually you would then want that to enter into clinical practice if it was useful. And that you know, there's a huge community of people doing esoteric research like what I do with the hope that from that will become, you know, will come uh, practical kind of applicable steps we can take to improve uh, medical practice and people's health. Well, thank you so much, uh, Dr. Palmer. I, I really appreciate your time. Thank you. Yeah, that's terrific. I think it's great that you've fo fo focused attention on this and I look forward to seeing your book. Sounds good. Thank you, Dr. Palmer. <laughs>